everyone. Happy Valentine's Day. Hope it's a day that's filled with love. Uh, not just the consumerist love that we, at this point, typically associate with this holiday. But real, true love, be it your love with your romantic partner, with your family, friends, and or, most importantly, probably, with yourself. The topic of love is actually quite perfect for what I want to talk about today, which is, as promised, last episode about Leo Biscalia. Now, I first have to say, I have somehow... (laughs) Lost my copy of Living, Loving, and Learning by Leo Biscalia, which is a book that I came upon uh, May of last year. And I had just come across something about it and was going through some challenging early pandemic times at that point. And coincidentally actually started reading it in earnest on June 12th which I started reading the book and thought wow this book is awesome like how did I just let this sit on my shelf for about a month and looked the man up obviously because I was like you know I not atypical for me I just buy books on a whim but without knowing who the person is or what the book is really about and so I looked him up and, it, and I saw that he actually passed away on June 12th, which was kind of an eerie little fact, but also kind of just amazing and coincidental in that sense. So where to start with Lou Buscalia? I don't want to go too deeply into his background because... There's interesting stuff there, but I think the things that are most interesting are he was born into this Italian-American family, as you can probably tell from his name, Leo Buscalia, and he eventually became a professor at USC. And he was teaching these young kids when one of his students tragically committed suicide. And that experience shook him up so much that he decided on his own to start this class called simply Love 101. And the purpose of the class was to teach his students about living and love, to live a life of love. And not just in the romantic sense, obviously, but more so, really, in the sense of loving yourself and loving the world around you. And for me, the book was brilliant for many reasons. Because it wasn't... So, I should backtrack a little. He eventually became incredibly popular at USC for this course. Kind of like, you know, one of those courses you have to just take because it teaches you so much beyond what you need for a job it teaches you skills in life and he eventually became so popular that he gave these lectures on PBS like it was like lectures that they use for their fundraising and apparently they were so popular that PBS would run them quite often and would do very well and eventually of course he wrote books and living loving learning is a compilation actually of many of his lectures that someone had dutifully written down and then compiled into this book and what's awesome about it is you really hear his voice in the book when he's you know writing these words to you because this is what he said and also the it's it's a little repetitive because he will you know use the same kind of things that he says in speeches 
several times. For example, he really loves his name. He loves saying it. And even though you don't get to hear it, you can kind of feel how much he loves saying his name. And some of the anecdotes also are kind of woven throughout. But generally, it does a great job of including pretty different lectures and speeches into this one book. And I should actually add a little footnote here, which is during this time, I actually read several self-help books. It was kind of a strange period because honestly, until last year, I had never, ever (laughs) picked up a self-help book ever in my life. I can't really say why. I think really because I never really felt a pull towards them or felt I needed them. And I didn't really pick up my first one thinking I needed it either. It was actually just recommended by someone I um, knew. And he he basically was like, oh, this is like something I really love. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I'll check it out. And for whatever reason, I I had purchased a few before. Because as you guys know, my friends on this, who are listening to this podcast, know well, I am addicted to buying books. And so I had apparently built up this little, uh, shall we charitably put mini library of self-help books and I think it was partly because of the pandemic it was the opening days of the pandemic I kind of gravitated towards those books a little bit because as I explained in my earlier in the earlier episode I had also gone through some pretty serious personal losses at that time and so having that was a good moment for for me to reflect though not all of them were actually very helpful because I remember distinctly one of them I don't want to say the the writer was like bragging or anything like that but part of her theory which which I think is a good one is you should basically do what you can and have your peace with it and I think for most of my life, that's the case. I, for example, with work, do the best I can, and the result is what it is. In the words of Maria Konnikova, again, someone I talk about in an earlier episode, in her book, The Biggest Bluff, which is about pay- playing poker, her mentor, coach, Eric Seidel, tells her, play basically your best you you can't control the outcome because there will be times with poker because it's not a game where you can really actually totally know there's there's always actually a a chance of chance uh or actually there's not a chance it's definite that there's chance in there but the the important thing he was teaching her was that you just have to play your best and just see what the outcome is and that basically if you keep on consistently doing that you eventually will come out winning uh, in the long run. And so that's kind of what this other writer was saying. But her anecdote for saying this was dealing with a loss. And it was all about how she was sad when her family member passed away, but also had made her peace with it because... She had had all this time to be with the family member and to take care of the family member. And so it was kind of like, you know, we spent all this lovely time together, time I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I'm really happy that I did this. And so yada, yada, yada. But I thought it was actually really terrible, at least for me at the time to read, because part of the grief that I had was that I had not done my best. I had not been able to be there with my family members. And so for me reading that, I was like, well, I have not made my peace with that. I 
that's like directly the point that was harshest for me. And so that wasn't a very good self-help read for me in that moment. And I read another one that was about meditation and uh, basically it was a psychologist. What is that book called? I'll, I'll, I'll find it and, and tell you guys in a later post. But it, that one I actually liked more. Uh, he was more my style, a little less kind of granola, crunchy style and more direct. And also it was just kind of like, here it is. Like you also basically putting less pressure on, on the meditation process and just kind of saying like, do your best your brain will wander. And I have difficulty meditating sometimes. And so I thought it was a nice, nice kind of basically go easier on yourself book. And then I also read Dan Harris, the ABC journalist, his um, book on being, is it called 10% happier or something like that? But it was also about meditation. And it was just nice to read because it's part memoir part discussion of meditation it's really his journey through meditation and it was just kind of nice to hear about this pretty normal dude talking about how he you know eventually sought out meditation and found it to be quite productive and useful for various factors in his life and then Leo Buscalia the subject of our talk today which kind of is a roundabout way to go through this. Sorry, if you are a first-time listener, you will learn soon that I am a meanderer, or in the words of Dead Poets Society, I digress quite a bit. Anyway, Leo Buscalia, where to start? He, for me, there were just so many beautiful parts of his book. I took a pen to the book as I do to many books and basically just completely scribbled up this book. Like I don't even want to know or say how many pages of this book have underlining hearts, stars, smiley faces, other random notes in the margins, like long notes in the margins. I actually have not found my copy of Leo's book, which I'm really sad about because I took notes at a pretty vulnerable time and it's kind of nice to get to look back on that. I'm sure it's somewhere in the house. I just can't find it because I have a trillion books and, uh, you know, I'm living with my parents too. And so I'm sure someone shelved it somewhere where it's hard for me to find. Um, but I just bought another copy. <laughs> yeah, horrifying, I know. Anyway, uh, I think the one of the first things he wrote that deeply moved me was about trips he had. Um, so that's something actually important in his background, was that he, I think, took a year off or something like that, but he took these long pauses in his life where he would travel the world. He would just like sell like everything he had and just like go to Asia for like a year or two and just like really live there. And he recounts one of those times and he's speaking about how, you know, he meets this French woman in, I believe, Cambodia And she's, like, appreciative of his not just being another tourist kind of going through Cambodia and taking in its, all the sights and all that, but really someone who is kind of trying to immerse himself into the culture and kind of understand how the people lived. And and that was kind of her point, was that you really should check out how people live. And... The thing that really struck Leo was, you know, in countries like that, they are bound to have horrific storms, 
typhoons and such that will completely flood their homes. It's a natural phenomenon that they are apparently very used to. And what they do is they will basically kind of just go with the flow and they'll move during these seasons to a higher part. They'll just kind of take their losses with their homes and move up to a higher part of the country with their neighbors and live there and wait for basically the storm to subside. And during that time, live very communally with their neighbors. And Leo was just so struck by this because it was a moment where obviously people really needed each other. And he was living in LA at this time and kind of talking about how separated we were from each other. How, how really regardless of where you live in this country, people are very separated. People don't know their neighbor's affairs. You know, we erect these high fences around each other's. We put on curtains in our windows and, you know, we really guard and shield our privacy. Um, and kind of because of that, the cost of that is to also kind of sacrifice connectivity. <clears throat> and Leo writes this part that I absolutely fell in love with. He said, I thought, wouldn't that be beautiful if six months out of every year, some of us could live together? I can see you thinking, who the hell wants to live with my neighbor? But maybe it would be a beautiful thing to live with a neighbor and to find out what it is, again, to be dependent upon people and how beautiful it is to be able to say to someone, I need you. We think to be a grown-up, we must be independent and not need anyone. And that's why we're all dying of loneliness. How wonderful to be needed. And how great to need and to be able to say to someone, I need. I have no hang-up about saying I need all of you. Every single one of you. The bummer is that our lives only pass occasionally. But the greatest experiences in my life are when lives intersect and two human beings are able to communicate. So, obviously, I really loved that. I loved the message of that, the feel of that, and really felt like, yeah, it's it's so true. When I think about the friendships I've made, the kind of cross barriers that I, I have... It's because you reach out to someone and you need them. You you don't really, I guess, what does that mean to really need someone? You probably could survive on your own, but it's just so ni much nicer to kind of go through things with other people. I actually, this is triggering a memory of mine, which is when I was going through this horrific breakup, like the most horrific breakup I've ever had in my life and it was partly it was compounded partly because it was kind of a rebound and I had not gotten over the real breakup I you know obviously was using this relationship to staunch the pain of that one and so it was just kind of really hit me twice but in one breakup <laughs> and I was kind of just like this wounded person it was crazy like it was a very strange experience for me because I knew fully that I was not well and not feeling well and just the only way to describe it was depression a high functioning depression but depression and high functioning in the sense that like you know I still went to work I still did my job but I could feel just incredibly lonely and terrible and I still went to social events and went in on dates with other people, so on and so forth. But I, there was just like this residual deep sadness that I was not able to for half a year, I feel, to really kind of dig out of. Anyway, 
what was really brilliant about that episode for me was I was like, as I was saying, a wounded animal and also still doing a lot of work and obviously talked to some of my really good friends about this. And that was incredible because you really realize in those moments how amazing it is to have great friends who will drop anything and just listen to you. And, you know, normally you'll have conversations with people, like good friends, and at some point people are like, oh, hey, I gotta go. That was, you know, one of those times where no one ever said anything, even if I was talking for, like, hours. People were just, like, more than happy to listen, more than happy to relay their terrible experiences, and to really kind of do that, like, it gets better. Like, you you too will get over this, because I have been there situation and I also randomly started friendships with some people then one of my now very good friends I still remember I was going to her office to ask her about a work thing and I had some like you know very superficial contact with her before just like incredibly superficial and that was the first time I had really like stepped foot into her office and I remember closing the door and just being like hey do you have some time to like talk about something totally random and she was like yeah of course like take a seat and she was just so warm and nice and I always knew she was warm and nice we just had never had a chance to really talk and I just kind of unloaded all of this on her and she was brilliant about it. Other things that I really appreciated about Leo's book was he also talks about the uselessness of things and he uses the example of living in Los Angeles and having earthquakes all the time or not all the time but frequently enough and scary enough that you in the moment realize this home that I've built with you know all these electronics and nice things it can all be gone in the bl- in a blink of an eye and he really drills home through that the message of what's the point what's the use of all of these things and that's something that I really especially during the pandemic, have appreciated more and more. Having things is wonderful. It's great. It can keep you preoccupied. But ultimately, what really matters is that connection both to yourself and to the others around you. That's what really makes life living. And that's what Leo really cares about is what are you doing in your life? How are you living? Are you living basically just for the glory of doing well at work or at school uh, to make lots of money? Whatever it is, is that really your purpose in life? Or is it something that he at least and what I also agree is grander, which is to live in such a way so that when you one day inevitably have to leave the world, you're leaving it a better place. You're making someone's day. And I found that message to be so profound and beautiful and important. It's really, I think, important for a lot of people to learn and appreciate. And I really, I think that's one of the things that has always really repulsed me about politics. And I think House of Cards, as crazy of a show as that is I think it really actually showed in a very sinister manner manner, but essentially what our politics are like and the reason why I say this is because politicians have an incredible amount of power even if they're just one person like a very junior senator from Idaho they still have an incredible power because their vote 
can really lead to one way or another on very important issues, just as judges and so on and so forth. But I think politicians, it's just even more direct because you, you know, we, the people elected them. And yet you really see, especially in today's day and age, a lot of politicians using that birth that they have to leverage into a lot of other things, be it book deals or, you know, obviously the most sinister, right, is that they're using their seats to get financial gains. Um, and sometimes it's really absurd. Sometimes people just want to really stay in that seat. And obviously you have to have a lot of money for political campaigns these days. And so the incentives are just terrible for people. And it just really, I think in this pandemic environment where we really need people to care about people and these politicians are people who have that power to really help others in in, in a way that all of us have already kind of we've socially contracted that they would be the ones who through government would do these kind of public works they're really letting us down in this moment and it's it's been incredible really to see also through the evolution of politics not just in this country but in many others across the world how governance has you know originally been this thing that people brought bought into because the idea was okay I on my own cannot construct this road but if we all kind of put into this middle pot and decide that this these few people are the ones who are going to take care of this be be in charge will be able to create something greater and it's evolved from that from like this thing of human creation where we have used government to exceed what we could do individually to now being incredibly individualistic and incredibly narrow-minded in that sense. And that's been really kind of breathtaking to see and sad that that essentially government now operates under limiting beliefs of, of what government is capable of doing. Moving on to other facets of Lee Buscalia's book that I really loved. I, and I found this directly applicable to my love life because, you know, being a woman of my age, and I, I like to think that I'm fairly mature, I've often found it frust- frustrating dating guys who I just felt like just didn't get it. Or even if they, you know, even the ones who I ended things with and, you know, they're very nice and everything, the thing that really kind of has so far driven me a little, not crazy, but just been frustrating is to see how, how unmalleable people can be. Like, all I remember distinctly ending a relationship. I wouldn't actually. Maybe relationship. At least for him, it was a relationship. With For me, it was just this guy I had gone on a good number of dates with. And I remember ending it with it, with ending it with him. And part of the reason why I ended it was because he. And I had very different fundamental beliefs about things. And I just was like, you know, we've seen each other enough times for me to know that. And it just wouldn't be good in the long run. Because like, yes, like, you know, it's nice to have someone to go on these like museum visits with. But I also like that's not all life is right and I actually think that was the thing that I've been thinking about that time a little bit recently and I think that was the thing that 
maybe he was a little too caught up in was because he was really, I think, loving the fact that he found someone who was willing to go on all these random little adventures with him on. But for me, what really kind of ended the any semblance of hope was I realized like we didn't really have that much to talk about like we would go to museums and we'd be like oh like look at this exhibit or like I distinctly remember on one date we actually went on a tour and it was great because it like absolved us of the pressure to really kind of have to talk to each other but it also kind of was like weird because if you were doing that you know, you're having the activity kind of preoccupy needing to actually speak to each other. And our final um, meeting, when I ended things with him, we actually were together for many, many hours speaking. And it was actually kind of interesting because we were actually really kind of talking. But for me, that again, really showed that it wasn't going to work. Because we weren't arguing, obviously, but I was explaining to him why it wouldn't work. And instead of kind of seeing things from my point of view, he would then kind of, you know, go in his direction. But anyway, all this is to say, <laughs> um, what was really interesting was this lesson that I had from, from all this, which is you really can't teach people to change you can't make anyone change even someone who claims that he really you know he envisions marrying you that person even may not change and in fact when I ended things I was like you know best of luck like I'm sorry this work didn't work out etc etc all the you know usual things you say to someone and he said I just want to let you know my door will always be open to you. And I said, oh my gosh, please don't say that. Like, I really don't want that. Like, it's not going to happen. And also, like, I, you know, I would never want you to sacrifice your beliefs for me. Because again, that was kind of the linchpin of why I told him we weren't going to work out. And he said, oh, well, no, if you were to come back to me, it would be because you would, you know, fall in line with my beliefs, not vice versa. And I was just like, what? Like, how, like, absurd that, like, you claim to want to be with someone. And basically, you know, if this person comes back to you, it's because, not because you're, you are going to compromise, but because you are going to staunchly hold fast to your beliefs and just deal with that like basically I would have to completely capitulate to whatever he wanted and that was just really bonkers to me I was just like what like what is what is this like um and anyway Leo talks about needing to teach people lessons and what was great was he who he uses kind of metaphor if he said you know you could bring a million balloons and wrap them all around this table and you can festoon it with you know streamers and put on the prettiest tablecloth and have all these flowers and just make it basically the most beautiful table in the world but that won't make the person want to come to that table and really listen and change the only way to really do that is for the person himself or herself to really want to come to that table. And it was almost like a light bulb moment for me, <laughs> even though it's such a simple point, but I was like, Oh my gosh, it's so true. Like, because then I was recounting some of my friends who's, you know, then successful relationships. And it was like, yeah, you know, the husband being like, you know, she had a tough, career and I but I really wanted to be with her so I realized I needed to make these changes or the girl being like you know I realized I needed to do xyz and that 
I mean, it's, it's what, what people talk about the work, right? The work of being in a relationship. And I think in today's environment, and again, thank you, rom-coms, but I think we are often programmed to think that like, if we meet someone who doesn't help us instantly, who isn't a complete compliment to us in every single way, then that person isn't worth pursuing or being with. And that's not true. That's not right. Like, there are obviously things that you have to agree and align on. Like, for myself, I think what's really important is there's this intangible kind of X factor of, like, do I really like this person? Or am I seeking this person out out of loneliness? So the person I was talking about, I actually, as I was saying, I was going on dates when in, in this almost kind of lobotomized state, to be honest, like, again, I am <clears throat> at that point was a very high functioning kind of depressed person. Sorry, my voice is really weird today. Um, but I would just, you know, go on these dates with him during that time. He was he was actually the main person I went on dates with. And I just remember putting on a smile, like, you know, getting dressed up like every almost, I think basically every weekend, like every Saturday or Sunday, whatever it was, I would see him for basically since that relationship ended almost basically. Yeah. And I remember like sitting in these Ubers heading off to wherever it was he wanted me to meet him and just kind of being like oh god like not like oh god I'm so not happy to see him but there it was just like you know it was just something I had to do to basically get myself out of the house so for that it was good for me in that sense but I think also because of that I obviously wasn't my true self and when I kind of gained more of who I really was as I was like feeling better and also, you know, just really had more time to kind of reflect. I was like, this is not, not great. Right. And I I actually think the thing that I'm actually just talking about it now with you guys, kind of, um, that I've reflected on more is that was part of the problem too, probably was because we were kind of hiding behind all these dates like it was it's nice to like go on all these dates going on these random things with people but you don't really get to know who the other person is if you're not really talking to each other and I I feel like yeah like we were talking to each other but it was like in such a weird way it wasn't like an earnest way I guess and it also was strange I think partly to be honest, like I had a sense of the fundamental problems earlier on. And I think because of my loneliness, I just kind of like, I was kind of scared to ask about it because I really kind of just wanted, not wanted it to work because I think also I realized pretty early on this wasn't going to work really. But like also, you know, you just don't know, like, what do I know about love? Because obviously I'm not successful in it um in the sense uh, in the metric that we usually measure love and its success by and um you know all those things but now that I think about it I think it's really hard and I think that's why I actually cherish this other relationship I had which it also obviously didn't end well, but we didn't really go anywhere. We like we, we only went to restaurants. We met up several times and only went basically to restaurants and, you know, just face to face talk to each other. And the conversation was like meandering and about all random different kinds of things and all that. But it was nice. It was nice because you get a kind of deeper insight into who the other person is. And I really liked that. And I think maybe that's why 
I have this like deeper hang up about that one. Um, I'm a, I am kind of a believer in like gut and how your gut feels. The more and more I have dated and I think, you know, that was something about, about that person that I think gut wise, I felt better about in some ways. Uh, though obviously with that one, there were also other issues, of course. Um, but anyway, all this is to say, uh, I could probably talk about Leo Buscalia as well as all these digressions for hours, but I will relieve you guys of that. I do highly suggest reading the book. I have pushed it onto several friends and I will not say uniformly they've loved it. I think some people have been a little put off by the 70s, 80s, like groovy language that he uses. And uh, some other friends are like, you're recommending me a self-help book? Like, do you think there's something wrong with me or something? And I have to explain like, no, like, you know, like people also think of like, you know, I don't know, Pride and Prejudice or Catching the Rye as a form of kind of not direct self-help but like you know they teach you morals and themes of life and just think of it like that and you know but I have had some friends who've read it and who've absolutely have loved it and so yeah please do give it a try send me a message let me know what you think of it and um yeah so I am going to do two quick questions that are much lighter and much more fun on this day of love. The first one I have is from one of my friends who asked um, what TV shows I have been enjoying recently, knowing that I do really love TV. So I've watched a few things actually recently because work has been insane and I find it difficult to unwind at night and so I will like quote unquote reward but really you know try to fall asleep by watching an episode of something and usually I am able to make it through the whole episode but sometimes I will just fall asleep but I recently have watched the last the most recent season of Curbed which I you know I used to love Curb a ton and I um Curb Your Enthusiasm that is but I also was kind of like, uh, you know, the show's kind of feels dated eventually. And, you know, just kind of like with a great fling or something, you know, things just kind of dissipate. But I recently picked back up and I was like, this is actually pretty great. Like the beginning. Eventually I again was like, uh, okay. Yeah. I kind of remember why, like I kind of let the show go eventually, but overall I would give it like a seven and a half out of 10. Like fun, entertaining, good, like, kind of thing to watch and chuckle a little bit late at night. I also, I know this is going to sound so appalling to some of my friends, um, because I, I actually really have never admitted to this, never really watched Seinfeld. Like, I've seen, like, you know, obviously the Soup Nazi episode and a few snippets here and there, and yes, I know, like, you know, this was syndicated all over, and yet I never got into it. But it is on Hulu, <laughs> all of it, I've recently discovered. And so I've made it my quest to get through the show. I've gone through the first two episodes so far, and it's fine. It's not great. And I, but I, I do think part of the reason why it's not incredible is because it's, you know... It's It was a pioneer in its time, and now a lot of shows are heavily influenced by Seinfeld. So what was so new and fresh about it isn't so new and fresh now. And in a way, I kind of watch it more so for the factor of like, oh, it's fun to watch because I am, you know, getting more cultural references. Like, I now really get why people write that they work at Vanderlei Industries <laughs> on their dating profiles. 
Like, when I saw that in the past, I was like, wait, where's that? And I would, I googled it, obviously, to be like, oh, of course, it's a Seinfeld reference. But now I, like, firmly know where that reference comes from. And also kind of know why uh, guys can be so weird with dating. Um, Like, actually, that first episode I thought was really funny because I have had not the same situation, but a, a similar one of where I was sleeping over at some guy's place. Like, he actually asked me, invited me, but was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, no pressure. I should clarify. I was on a date with this guy and we were, um, it was super late. And so he was like, oh, you shouldn't drive home because it was a further drive out for me. He was like, you know, or take the train back. He was like, you know, you should just stay. And it was weird and awkward. And watching this first episode of Seinfeld helped me reminisce about that. Um, I also watched as many people have the Framing Britney documentary. I obviously grew up on a lot of Britney, as most people around my age have, and really loved her. And then I definitely actually remember her kind of downfall, demise that led to the conservatorship. And, you know, she's still in the tabloids once in a while now because she has these really pretty strange Instagram posts. Like, if you watch them in the documentary, they make it seem like, you know, she's trying to get messages across, and maybe that's possible, but to me it almost seems like she she feels like she's been stunted in some way, or has had, like, a, I don't know, something seems off. Um, but watching it, I a thousand percent believe that the media had a huge role in her, you know, mental health, um, issues. Like, it's, like, how could you not? Like, even if you came from the most sane, happiest family to have basically, you know, everyone in the world trash you in the way that they did, you know, just amplified to the millionth degree, have everyone follow you and, and, you know, doing and having personal struggles just basically blared, through the newsstands in that way. Like, how could you not feel absolutely terrible? And it really, actually, I felt kind of disgusted with myself in the sense that, like, you know, I read, I never subscribed, but I definitely read those tabloids. Like, you know, you go to your doctor's office or your dentist's office, and that's what's there, and you're just like, okay, like, I'll read through Us Weekly or People or whatever it is. And, And there was an interesting part in there where, you know, the paparazzi talk about how, like, you know, it, it was like a two-way street kind of a situation where the stars needed them and they needed the stars um, each to kind of survive. And it is true. Like, you know, there is some complicity for sure on the part of um, celebrities in their, you know, quest for fame, that they give up their privacy, basically, for this. But on the same side of that, like, it's just kind of gross, I think, that, like, we care so much about these people. Like, who cares? Like, I don't, I don't know. I I think now I'm in a much healthier place in that sense. Like, I don't really care, aside from, like, having basically it as, like, a cultural point, which is really sad that this is kind of the quote-unquote cultural point of our day. But I guess, like, in olden times, people were obsessed about knowing what, like, the queens and kings of, um, you know, England or wherever and other nobility were up to, you know, people always love gossip. And anyway, I, I only know about celebrity gossip in that sense, but I really, you know, like the demoise of, of kind of leaking more stuff out, whatever. It's just kind of, I don't know. I think it's, it is good in the sense that, like, it can be good to eliminate people who are not so nice and have these fake personas, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't really, I don't know. I, I think overall, celebrity culture needs to really die down. Like, we need to kill it. Like, if there is a way to merge cancel culture with celebrity culture, to create cancel celebrity culture, 
that would be awesome. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, good, interesting documentary. And um, I do feel like at the time when Brittany was going into the conservatorship, I think she definitely was struggling through stuff. I don't know what happened to her, but I, I think something pretty significant given the judge's position at the time. Uh, but I, I do feel now, given where she is, she seems much more level-headed. And I, I think it, what was really sad was, you know, she talked at one point about how she didn't want to perform her whole life. Like, she really wanted to just be a wife and a mom and just be with her kids. And I, I think that, like, I don't know if her conservators are making her perform and continue to do that. But if they are, like, let the girl go. Like let her just be who she wants to be and live you know potentially a reclusive life a silent life whatever it is that she wants like let her be um anyway yeah so friend those are the things that I've been watching recently um another friend asked what I would want to bring on a desert island like what are kind of my must have happy things at the moment I will say pretty simple um you know I can't take any people on this list with me so given that um it would be my iPad uh because it's more powerful than a phone like you know assuming I only get one electronic item but I really love my iPad it's super easy I can do a ton on it including recording this anchor sponsored episode um and it's just great i do really like my ipad and other than that i i'm still an analog girl in the sense that i love writing physically writing in a journal so i'd want that and i would want a book um to read those are probably those are like really my must haves like I know my friends are really disappointed because they were expecting like some skincare items or whatever on this list, but I'm pretty chill these days about that. As I was saying in my last episode, really more and more into like the, uh, mental these days. Anyway, friends, this has been a pretty long episode and, um, but always enjoyable and fun to be talking with all of you. Hope everyone again has a wonderful Valentine's Day and every day um, because it's important to love yourself. All right. Talk to you guys soon.